0: Good morning. You can turn in your Bibles to John chapter 18. I'd like to thank Steve and Jennifer for doing music this morning. It's funny, I got a text message a uh, week before last from my former pastor, who I talked to regularly, and he mentioned that he had watched a, a sermon from last summer. And in that, he watched the whole service. In that service, the halls happened to be leading music and had Come Thou found that, that day in your song list he said that's one of my favorite hymns and he said i'd never heard it before with some of the lyrics that you guys used and i said well then i'm really happy you got to hear the song the correct way <laughs> <laughs> he said those are fighting words but john chapter 18 verses 12 through 27 So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First, they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter stood outside at the door. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. When he said these things to them, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand saying, Is that how you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, If what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Now, Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. So they said to him, You also are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, Did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter again denied it, and at once a rooster crowed. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, once again we thank you that we have the opportunity today to come together to worship your great name. And Lord, we pray for the people here today, for all of us, Lord, that we be people who know you and believe in you and trust in the gospel. Lord, we pray for our time in your word, that that we would be pointed to truth through your word, Lord. Lord, we continue to pray for the Ukraine, Lord, in the terrible war that they're in with Russia. Lord, we think of the incredible devastation that it's caused, the millions of refugees that it's created and undoubtedly more to follow. Lord, we pray for those people, people who've been separated from families, parents, fathers who've been separated from their wives and children to continue to fight. People who have lost everything, lost homes, lost family, lost relatives. Lord, we we pray for them and continue to pray for the church in Ukraine, Lord, that in the face of incredible difficulty, Lord, that they would serve each other and serve others in this effort, Lord, and we just continue to pray for them. We pray for nations that are taking in refugees, Lord, we, we know that Americans have donated and given support, Lord, and we just pray that that be put to good use to serve those people well in this time of incredible need, Lord, and so we just, we pray for them and continue to pray for the resolution and conclusion of this terrible situation. In Jesus' name, amen. Over the last 20 years, I've probably seen at least a couple dozen documentaries about September 11th. I feel like new ones come out every year, sometimes more than one. I've seen several. There are a lot of accounts of that day. I've also read a couple books on the subject. They all have access to the same general information. But... The documentary filmmakers are different people, and so they present things in different ways. The main details are always present, but then there are elements that one documentary might mention that another does not. It's not that they're lying or contradicting each other. You only have so much time to tell the story that you wish to tell. In the Bible, we have four gospels, and each of them talks about the story of Jesus's arrest, trial, crucifixion, death, and ultimately his resurrection. Now, with his arrest, trial, and crucifixion, you have many events which happen in just a few hours' time. And in the ancient world, where stories were being told orally and with limitations in transmission of writing, you can't chronicle every second of a several-hour-long series of events. And this is really true for everything that is in the four Gospels, but I'll focus just on the stories after Jesus is arrested. They're consistent with each other, but they're not carbon copies of each other. Some events might be in one or more Gospels, but not others. Some things that people say might be in one or more Gospels, but not in others. It's not that any of the Gospels are wrong, they just don't all record every detail. They all record Jesus being arrested, tried, crucified, and dying. They all record the resurrection. Those are the essentials of the story where the story would not properly be told without them. So to give one example from our passage today, before Jesus is tried by the Jewish ruling council, the entity commonly referred to as the Sanhedrin, he's brought to the former high priest, a man named Annas, in an unofficial interrogation that was not part of his official trial. Perhaps because it was unofficial, the other gospel writers sought to leave that part of the story untold because Jesus visiting Annas is only mentioned in the Gospel of John. Another example. All four gospels record that Peter denied Jesus three times. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record Peter weeping when he realizes what he's, do- what he's done. But John omits this detail. I think that's something worth remembering in these passages. Also, if you've never done it at Easter time, I would suggest taking an hour or two and reading the narrative sections of Jesus' arrest and trial and crucifixion and resurrection in all four Gospels and seeing how the different Gospel writers tell the same story. With that, we come and continue in John chapter 18 this morning. (coughs) And I wanna start with something that's certainly familiar to us in our news right now. I mentioned it when I was praying, and certainly the world has been following this terrible war between Russia and Ukraine. And in this horrible situation, one person has come to international attention for his leadership and heroism, Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky. Week before last, there were reports that Russian President Vladimir Putin was making attempts to have Zelensky killed, going to the extreme of sending in hit squads from places like Africa and Chechnya with bounties on the head of Zelensky. When we read the four Gospels, it's appropriate that the focus is on Jesus. He is the Lord and Savior of the world. The Gospels are about him. But I think when we read these stories, there's always this aura of biblical mystique around these events, and we can lose sight of the thuggishness of those who plotted against Jesus. It was a conspiracy against Jesus by people who hated him and who wanted him dead. And one of the things that the Gospel of John shows throughout the story is that while these men are evil, that it is ultimately Jesus who shows his power. And so with that, we come to our passage, And in today's passage, we see Jesus arrested and brought before the former high priest. But at the same time, this is happening, and John's gospel switches back and forth between scenes with Jesus being questioned, while he also shows the apostle Peter facing questions of his own at the same time. One other thing that's important to note. While the ruling authorities hated Jesus... To understand this passage, it's also important to understand that they hated Rome too. Israel was not an independent state, but they were subjects of the Roman Empire. And this was a sore subject and a source of embarrassment for the Jews. Yet that backdrop helps to fill in some of the background details of what's happening in the events of this passage today. And so in today's passage, we'll look at four scenes And the main idea of the passage is that Jesus allowed himself to be crucified by a world who hated him so that Jesus could save that world. First scene, Jesus arrested. Verse 12. So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. One thing we talked about last week was the group who arrested Jesus and how it likely included several hundred people. Again, there was a vast effort to have Jesus killed. You had a Roman cohort plus temple guards sent from the Pharisees and the Jewish ruling council. And it is those officers and their captain of the Roman cohort who arrest Jesus in verse 12. Verse 13. First, they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. So John mentions two men, Annas and Caiaphas. I referenced Annas in the beginning and how Jesus being brought to him is a detail which is exclusive to John's gospel. In this passage, Annas is introduced as the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest. But Jesus' first led to Annas. Why? Annas was a very powerful man in his own right. Annas had been the high priest between the years A.D. 6 and A.D. 6. And fifteen, He also had five sons who all would serve as high priest, and Caiaphas, a son-in-law. So Annas was the patriarch of a priestly dynasty. And the only reason why he stopped being the high priest was because the Roman government had removed him from power. But that did not mean that his influence had ended. Being brought before Annas was an unofficial interrogation, presumably in an effort to get Jesus to incriminate himself so that Annas could testify as a witness against Jesus at his actual trial. In the passage, John says Caiaphas had been the high priest that year. And that is not to say that Caiaphas had a one-year term or that there was a high priest where there was a rotation where it changed every year. Caiaphas had actually been the high priest for over 10 years at this point. So you have two high priests named Now, in Jesus' day, with rising tensions in Jerusalem between the Jews and the Romans, the high priest had become a pretty significant political figure. It came with power and prestige. The high priest was also the head of the Jewish ruling council, the aforementioned Sanhedrin, who were the ones who officially tried Jesus. But before we continue, I must ask a question. What is the purpose of a high priest? In the Old Testament, the priests would offer sacrifices to God, but we see that Jesus offers himself as the perfect sacrifice. Priests, and especially the high priest, were experts and teachers of the law of the Old Testament. In that sense, they were seen as people who were respected for their interpretations of the Scripture, whereas Jesus speaks authoritatively on the law. Theologically, The high priest was seen as an intermediary between man and God. Jesus is the high priest who brings us into the presence of God. The priest had functions of serving the temple. At the beginning of Jesus' ministry in John chapter 2, he clears out the temple which had been defiled. The high priest was supposed to be morally upstanding. We see in these passages that these high priests are conspiring against an innocent man whereas Jesus is righteous and without sin. All of this points to Jesus himself being the true high priest. As the author of Hebrews says in chapter 4, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So we have Annas and Caiaphas. And John reminds us of one more thing in setting the scene for this passage. Verse 14. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. Now, that's a reference to an earlier event in John chapter 11 after Jesus raised his friend Lazarus from the dead. That incredible miracle that Jesus had done and a foreshadowing of his own death and resurrection. But with that great moment, not everyone was happy to see Lazarus again. If you read the end of John chapter 11, there are those who were worried that people would believe in Jesus, which would potentially shift the balance of power and bring in harsher treatment from the Romans. To quote the end of John 11, I don't have a slide for this, but John 11 beginning in verse 47... Not that the whole nation should perish. So basically, the people see what Jesus has done, and they say, what are we going to do? Everyone's going to start believing in this guy, overlooking the obvious that Jesus is who he claims to be. They overlook that and instead are worried about the consequences for them against the Romans. At that point in John 11, Caiaphas is basically looking at Jesus as a political pawn. Caiaphas worries that the attention that Jesus is gaining will lead to blowback against the Jews from the Romans. And so the easiest solution is for Jesus to die. And so in Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead in John 11, he has signed his own death warrant in the eyes of the high priest. We come to a second scene. We see Peter's first denial of Jesus. First part of verse 15. Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. A detail that John doesn't mention that the other Gospels do is that the other disciples all flee when Jesus is arrested. So it's just Peter and someone whom John calls another disciple. The other disciple is unnamed. For that reason, the most common view is that it's John himself. John never names himself in his gospel. He does refer to himself in places as the disciple whom Jesus loved. We are informed later in this gospel that John never fled from Jesus. And so I think it fits best that John is minimizing himself in the story, but that he is present for this event. That's the view I take. Second part of verse 15, we see... A convenient connection that helps the disciple, helps him gain access to Jesus's interrogation. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. So the disciple goes in with Jesus. Verse 16. But Peter stood outside the door. So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. Now, verse 16 is somewhat humorous to me. I think there's always a little bit of humor whenever Peter's involved in the story. John goes in. Other disciples have fled. And so Peter is just kind of awkwardly standing outside. And so John has to go to the servant girl who's guarding the door and say, he's with me. Verse 17. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, you also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. Keep in mind, in last week's passage, armed guards came to arrest Jesus, and Peter was ready to fight the whole world. Here, a young servant girl asks Peter if he's one of Jesus' disciples, and Peter says no. Technically, he says, I am not. Which is an interesting contrast to what Jesus had said when he was arrested. When Jesus gets approached, and they say that they're looking for Jesus, we talked about this last week, Jesus says, I am. When Peter is asked if he simply knows Jesus and follows him, he says, I am not. Verse 18. Now the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold, and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them, standing and warming himself. Once again, I think it's a little funny. It's not funny that Peter denies Jesus. But it's funny that Peter initially gets left outside, gets invited in, gets questioned about if he knows Jesus, loses his nerve. Because he's said he doesn't know Jesus, now he can't go in. But he doesn't want to leave. So where does he go? He's just outside in the cold with everyone else. To borrow an idea from Richard Phillips, since Peter has denied to be someone who follows Jesus, he's stuck having to blend in in with an unbelieving world. I do find it interesting that when we look at Peter in these stories, we often focus on his failure in denying Jesus. I feel like that's what I tend to hear when people talk about Peter, that is his denial. And that's fair. But I think it often gets framed in, look how badly Peter messed up. But what's interesting is to consider that Peter made it further than most of the other disciples who had already abandoned Jesus at this point. So the story to me isn't, look how badly Peter messes up. It's Peter went further than 10 of the 12 disciples and still failed. Peter might have been a coward, but he wasn't the cowardliest coward. Now in John 13, Peter had been told by Jesus himself that he would deny Jesus. He said, I wouldn't do that. I'd die for you. Other people might leave you, but not me. And it does seem that Peter has a problem that is all too common, which is that he was relying on his own strength, overconfidence, thinking that we're above fears and temptations, struggles and doubts that the rest of the world has, thinking we can just muster up enough faith that we can will ourselves to do it. But we're doomed to fail when we do that because we're still sinful and fallen people. Now, the good news is that we are saved by someone, where it does not rely on our strength, where it does not rely on the strength of our faith, but by the object of our faith, Jesus. We can fail, but we have a Savior who does not. That's the good news of the gospel. As John would say in 1 John 1, verse 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. In verse 19, The scene shifts from outside the house to inside the house. Jesus is speaking before Annas. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Now, the verse mentions that Jesus was questioned, but John does not actually record the questions that Jesus was asked. We actually don't see Annas or Caiaphas speak in these verses. Once again, that seems to point to Christ's control of the situation. And John's gospel, it is generally Jesus who is doing the talking. He is the one who's leading. As I mentioned in the first scene, but this interrogation before Annas is not Jesus' official trial. This is a preliminary interrogation which seemed to be to collect evidence against Jesus. They wanted to catch him saying something blasphemous. Jewish legal proceedings depended on witnesses to a crime who could testify against the accused. And again, they're apparently attempting to find grounds of which to convict Jesus. Verses 20 and 21. Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in the synagogues and in their temple where all the Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. Jesus is pointing to the transparency of his ministry. That what Jesus has said and taught can stand on its own. He doesn't hide things. People have had access to his teaching. If they want to know what Jesus taught, they can ask those who have heard his teachings. Not just the disciples, but thousands of other people who had heard Jesus throughout his ministry. It is also noteworthy that Jesus does not, that he fights back here. Yes, he willingly goes to the cross, but he will point to the injustices that he's facing. And he points to his teachings as being above reproach. They have no legitimate grounds to question what Jesus has said or taught. There's also a significant point to be made here that Jesus was open with his teaching. It was public, That's how all churches and really how all Christians should be. That we don't need to hide from what we believe. We don't need to hide from difficult biblical teachings or doctrines. It's not that we need to lull people in and then we can start talking about sin or something that's more challenging. Some churches only want to teach the easy things. We shouldn't do that. And we don't do that at this church. We teach the Bible. But there's also nothing that is hidden in the Bible. There's no secret teachings, nor should there be. That's how cults operate. They gradually introduce people further and further into a belief system. And we also, in our thinking about God and the Bible, and our own reading of God's Word, and our own time with God, should not ourselves ignore the teachings that are difficult or which are challenging for us. Those teachings are difficult and challenging, oftentimes for good reason. Because it's something that either we're not doing or that we don't believe. And so it confronts us where we are. We shouldn't ignore those things. Back to the story. When Jesus is advocating for himself, he's struck by one of the officers. Verse 22. When he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand. And when the officer does this, he says to Jesus, Is this how you answer the high priest? It's an ironic scene that a guard hits Jesus for disrespecting the high priest when Jesus is the true high priest. And the guard is disrespecting Jesus. It's disrespectful, but more importantly, it's unjust. The process for Jesus being arrested and questioned was highly inappropriate and largely illegal. Jewish law did care about verdicts which were fair and just for the accused. That's why when you read the Old Testament, there were requirements for witnesses to crimes. Instead, Jesus was arrested on the testimony of a false witness, Judas, who had been bribed. And when Jesus is arrested... There's no specific charge that they can bring against him. Instead, they question Jesus. They try to get him to testify against himself. Instead of having witnesses who can testify against Jesus, they try to get him to incriminate himself. But he doesn't, because he's sinless. So they'll later resort to false witnesses. And there are a lot of other procedural violations in the trial of Jesus The Sanhedrin could not try somebody for a capital offense at night, and they did. And there's a lot of other irregularities. The ruling authority had thrown in their lot. They wanted Jesus convicted and executed. Keeping all of this in mind, we see Jesus' response in verse 23 when he says to the guard, If what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? point to something that I've done. Jesus really issues a simple challenge. Point out what he has said that is problematic, and they can't do it. And so in verse 24 it says, Annas then sent him down to Caiaphas, the high priest. Annas sends Jesus to Caiaphas, having accomplished nothing. There's no grounds to convict, let alone to execute Jesus. And so if it was an attempt to get Jesus to incriminate himself... It failed. Jesus stands up to scrutiny and points to the fact that he's done nothing wrong. And we now come to our fourth scene and are brought back to Peter, who is going in the opposite direction. Now, when we last saw Peter in verse 18, he was with the servants and the guards. Verse 18 ends with, Peter also was with them, standing, warming himself. Verse 25 picks up right where that left off. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself, so they said to him, You also are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, Did I not see you in the garden with him? While Jesus is being questioned, so is Peter. And two more times we see Peter deny Jesus and deny knowing him. D.A. Carson summarizes this nicely when he says, John has constructed a dramatic contrast wherein Jesus stands up to his questioners and denies nothing, while Peter cowers before his questioners and denies everything. I would add that Jesus is questioned without any witnesses and speaks the truth. Peter is confronted with witnesses and lies. John is very matter-of-fact in recording his story. He doesn't get into the emotions of how Peter felt. He just records what was said. We don't see Peter again in this gospel until the first Easter morning after Jesus has risen from the dead. Now, it's interesting to think of Peter's highlights in this gospel. Herman Ritterboss is helpful in this point. In John's gospel, when we see Jesus pointing to his death and pointing to his humiliation on the cross whenever we see peter react to that he is always opposing jesus so for instance in john chapter 13 when jesus washes the disciples feet that is an extreme example of lowering himself in humility and humiliation pointing to the ultimate humiliation on the cross and when jesus does that peter initially says no john 13 verse 8 Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. In that same chapter, John 13, Jesus is talking of his impending death and says that Peter cannot follow where he's going. And the reason Peter cannot follow is because Peter cannot die to atone for the sins of the world, and he does not have the mission that Jesus has. And Peter is again defiant. 1337, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. 1338, Jesus answered, Will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. Peter tells Jesus, That's not true. Peter tells Jesus, He's wrong. We see in today's passage after the third denial, the last verse of our passage, 1827, Peter again denied it, and at once the rooster crowed. At last week's passage, when the guards come to arrest Jesus, Peter takes out his sword and cuts off the ear of one of the servants. Once again, they're arresting Jesus, but it's so that Jesus can go to the cross. It's the divine mission, and Peter is interfering, or he's trying to interfere. He doesn't realize that, but that's what he's attempting to do. And so, and also to keep in mind that this is not exclusive to John's gospel. Matthew 16, Jesus predicts his death. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. It is what must happen. Peter scolds Jesus for saying this, Matthew 16, 22. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. Jesus famously responds by saying, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. So there is a pattern with Peter where he does not understand the cross He does not understand the ministry and mission of Jesus. He loves Jesus. But what Peter wants is something which leads directly away from the cross. When Jesus is arrested, Peter tries to follow, which leads him directly into his denial of Christ. As the other disciples abandon Jesus, so too will Peter. Because where Jesus is going, they cannot follow. Because the cup that the Father has given... They cannot drink. We see those closest to Jesus abandon him, but Jesus doesn't abandon them. We see Peter's failure, but is contrasted by the Savior who does not fail. We see Peter's attempts to save Jesus from the cross, when it's Jesus going to the cross which saves the world. In various scenes, Peter has tried to tell Jesus what to do, but in these scenes, We see that even in the face of death, it is Jesus who is in control, that he knows what must happen. And after Jesus rose from the dead, and Peter saw the risen Lord, Jesus will come to him again. Not coincidentally, at another charcoal fire. And Jesus will restore Peter. Peter made mistakes, but he did love Jesus. And so we see this great moment of weakness from Peter as he denies the Lord. But we also see the restoration that comes from Jesus because we have a Savior who forgives. Jesus allowed himself to be crucified by a world who hated him so that Jesus could save that world. Now, as far as I'm aware, none of us have ever been in situations where our faith was tested in a potentially life and death situation the way Peter's was. He lost his nerve in the moment. If we're being honest, perhaps we can even understand Peter. When we read a story like this in the Bible, I think we find ourselves in one of two camps. Either we think, that wouldn't be me, I would never do that, I would die for my faith. And the second group thinks, I'm sure happy I've never been in that situation. One of the blessings that we do enjoy in the church In America, is that we don't face those life and death situations for our faith. We live in a free country where there's freedom of religion and a rich religious heritage. Peter backed down in a hostile situation. I think of how many of us struggle to even talk about our faith among family and friends and people we know. We might not deny Jesus, but so often we shrink back from Identifying ourselves with Jesus. In a much less hostile world, we face the same temptations to shrink back, where we're just standing outside the fire with the rest of the crowd trying to blend in. Sometimes people say that they would die for their faith. And that's an easy thing to say when you're not in a life and death situation. But for us, the bigger question is, would you live for your faith? Not vaguely saying, I'm a Christian. I'm not saying to be on a crusade of judging everything and everyone. But to be on a, uh, on a crusade of sharing the love of Jesus with people. Talking to people about the Lord who saved you from your sins. Talking about your faith. Talking about your struggles. Praying for people. People knowing that you're praying for them. Taking time to know people who don't know Jesus. Jesus and caring enough to introduce them to Jesus. Again, our world accepts someone saying they're Christian, but it's much less friendly to those who want to actually talk about their Savior. So we might not deny Jesus, but we have opportunities every day to tell the world that we know him. And that is what I continue to pray for, both for myself and for this church, because there are people all around us who don't know the Lord that we know. May we not be standing outside trying to keep warm, but making it known to the world that we know the Savior of the world and that we're his followers. Would you pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. And Again, Lord, we thank you that we have a great Savior that like Peter, we too fail, and you are faithful to forgive. So Lord, in spite of our sins, may we turn to you in faith and know that there is redemption in grace. In Jesus' name, amen.